Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. It's like waking up on your wedding day and yet not knowing if you're going to be left at the altar. The level of knowledge about the details of the Secretary of State's office is relatively the same, right? It's not something that people know the details of. And frankly, it's because it's not the same in every state. And I wanted to make sure that these, you know, particularly grassroots Republican parties that want to do this, that they know that I'm looking out for their voting rights too. I want them to know exactly what 8 p.m. means and exactly what being in line means. Being an Oregonian is more than a pride that we inherit. It's a past we step into and how we repair it. All right, folks, it is Wednesday, November 9th. It is the day after the election, but today's episode was actually recorded last week. So we want you to be very clear that our episode today with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan was recorded before we knew the results of this election. And we did that intentionally. As you all know, I'm assuming Secretary of State Shamia Fagan oversees the state election system. We talk in this episode about what that does and doesn't mean because it might not mean what you think it means. But this episode is all about elections democracy in Oregon, threats to democracy, how we count votes, how we can be sure that the systems we have in place that actually ensure the accuracy of our voting, some of which I was not aware of and was like actually impressed by. Reagan, I think you were more aware of because of close races that you've been involved in in the past. But brief overview of Secretary of State Shamia Fagan. Her story is pretty well known in the state and particularly among our audience of politicos at this point. But she was first elected in 2011 to the David Douglas School Board, ran against an incumbent and won. In 2012, she challenged an incumbent state representative, Patrick Sheehan, in HD 51. That was a relatively close election, much like the elections have turned out in East County and Clackamas County yesterday. And then 2014, she was reelected, took a break. In 2018, she took on Rod Monroe in a state Senate primary and won decisively, like a huge, huge victory. And then ultimately in 2020 was elected Secretary of State after a deeply competitive primary and then somewhat less competitive general election, although still somewhat competitive. And so now she's the Secretary of State in Oregon. That means a lot of different things, more than it does in a lot of other states. But we cover a lot of ground and Reagan, we talk in private often about good podcast guests and bad podcast guests. And Shamia is a great podcast guest. She's super interesting and engaging and funny. Damian Lillard comes up in the conversation. So I think folks will enjoy it. But Reagan, before we talk about maybe briefly, we'll talk about election night. What were your reflections on our podcast episode with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan? I think it was super important for Oregonians to know what the Secretary of State does, because I think with just a lot more opportunity on the internet for information to go out there that isn't accurate or is incomplete, you really have to have a baseline understanding of what the Secretary of State does. And I think that this episode is a really good starting place for that. Probably not all the information we need, right? But it's a great starting place for it. And then I think that there's a lot of resources that she kind of provided or pointed to that really help you build that understanding. And having a strong understanding the elections really helps you have confidence in how things go. doesn't mean you don't look for and encourage accountability, obviously, but you know, last night's elections, there's a bunch of close races, but mm-hmm. I have dealt with close races before you kind of alluded to it. A primary a couple of years ago that came down to two votes and watching that process kind of go through was so fascinating because you really got to see all the different checks and verifications and the levels. But the number one thing that you learned from that is that the Secretary of State doesn't run elections. She coordinates them. The county clerks run elections. 
And so you can go to your local county clerk and you can tell them, hey, I want to know about this and and can you help me understand this and, you know, what's happening here? And they can give you those answers if you ask nicely. You should ask nicely <laughs> to get those answers. And so, like, if people want to get their questions answered on election integrity, they can. But I'm increasingly concerned that there are too many people, a lot of them uh, on the Republican side, that don't actually want the answers. And so I want to kind of continue to push and say, hey, you know, whether the answer is what you agree with or not, this is the facts of what's happening. And this is how we can know elections are accurate. And that's important because if we don't have accurate and fair elections, we don't have a democracy. I could not agree more. And I will say, like, I hope folks listen to this conversation and particularly folks who do have concerns about election integrity and where, whether we can trust the results of the election, because I think Oregon does a great job in doing everything possible to ensure that the numbers are as accurate as possible. So by mail right, in every other state sucks, Ben. It's only in Oregon <laughs> where it is perfect and awesome. Not true. And actually, we talk about that a little bit, too, based on the secretary's experience with folks in other states. So we're not going to talk about this extensively right now, Reagan. But yesterday was election night. It is too soon to know for sure what the numbers are going to look like. I believe the Oregonian has called the race for Kotech already um, yep. is looking relatively certain like Democrats will control both legislative chambers. There are some high points for Republicans. I think the main one being the congressional race in CD5, where it seems mm -hmm. likely at this point that front of the pod, Lori Chavez Dreamer, will be winning that election. Any highlight from election day that you wanted to talk about, since this will be coming out uh, to our listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, right I think after. I'd be interested in doing more of a deep dive because I think there's more like there's a lot to talk about, but we don't have all the data yet. And so it's mm -hmm. just too soon to do that. But I would say the high points for a Republicans, the county commission races, all of the contested ones that I was aware of that weren't in Multnomah County, they went for the Republican leaning candidate. A lot of those are non-affiliated races, though, which is super interesting. Republicans will break the supermajority in the House and in the Senate which means Democrats would need Republican votes to raise taxes and reform Measure 11 or do any other kinds of like some major things like that. And so then it's just about these too close to call races and what are the margins and how does that affect what legislation is talked about in 2023 and what that legislation looks like. And so we'll get some more answers, but it'll be a little bit. And so we're we're just watching those results come in and getting ready for the 2023 legislative session. Congratulations uh, to you, Ben, by the way. You've been, you. Uh, you ran and barely squeaked by there in your district in House District 25, putting up a, what, a near 20 spot out there. So. so congratulations to you and to the new House District 25 and uh, looking forward to working with you in the legislature. Thank you. Thank you. I will say high points for Democrats. I think like, again, too soon to know for sure, but this was certainly a better night for Democrats than most people, including Democrats, anticipated. And I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about why that is. And Reagan, you and I have some theories about what was behind these numbers that we'll talk about in future podcasts. But the other thing I want to make very clear to all listeners, and especially those with political ambitions, it is likely that all new Congress people from the three competitive races all came on this podcast on their path to Congress. So if you have hopes of being in the United States Congress, just know that this podcast is a is a stop on the path and you've got to come on the pod. So congratulations to Val Hoyle, Labor Commissioner, who is almost certainly going to win in CD4. Lori Chavez-Dreamer looks like the likely winner in CD5. And Andrea Salinas, this point, is ahead, although that race has not been called. It's still very close, but she's ahead. And I think you'd probably rather be in her shoes than Mike Erickson's shoes at this point in time. 
So thanks to all the candidates who came on this podcast over the last year. We had a very diverse range of folks running in all the different offices, all different levels. And it was all in some ways culminating in last night. And it's been a fun journey for us. And folks have asked us about the future of the podcast. We'll probably talk more about this at some point. But for now, we're going to keep going and try to produce a high quality episode every week. And this week, we've got a really exciting one with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan. So Reagan, any final words before we head into the episode? Thankfully, the election is over. <laughs> and regardless of the results, we can move on because infinite election timeline uh, would be horrible. So <laughs> we're, I think we're all thankful that it's over, even if we didn't all get the results that we wanted. So democracy worked. And we'll be back in 2024 with lots more elections. And maybe we'll talk about school boards in 2023. Those are just five months sure. away. Sorry, seven months away. So very exciting stuff. Democracy never sleeps. All right. With that, please enjoy this episode with Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan. All right, Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, welcome to the podcast. I am happy to be here. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I am like a podcast evangelist. I love podcasts. I was listening to Grammar Girl in 07, so I'm oh always God. thrilled to be on a podcast. Well, we are very excited to have you. My first question is, I can only imagine that, well, so you're Secretary of State, so you're head of the elections. We'll talk about SOS office, but your name is not on the ballot this election. So does that just come with this sense of like relaxation and ease that you don't have to like, you've got to do the elections overseeing, but you're not like personally worried about whether you're going to win or not. What's the experience of like not having to worry about your name being on the ballot as an elected official? That is, is a, I'm stressed for different reasons, just because obviously <laughs> overseeing my first general election is, is exciting and nerve wracking and is stressful. But yeah, this is the first time since 2011, I was not on the ballot in 2016, but I was really involved in um, the Hillary Clinton campaign in the general election. So I wasn't on the ballot, but I was very like involved at that campaign. And so certainly this is the, really the first time since 2011 that I have not been on the ballot in a general election, or at least like, you know, deeply associated with a candidate on the ballot. So it is, it's, it is my tomorrow does not like feel as stressful, I think, as probably a lot of candidates, because it is stressful. Like my, I have a friend who once described election day for candidates in the best way I've ever heard, which is, it's like waking up on your wedding day and yet not knowing if you're going to be left at the altar. Oh my God. That is... And I feel like that's really accurate for all the folks running for office. Like you just, you're like, this could be a really, really exciting public moment in front of everybody. Or it could be a really, really awful public moment in front of everybody. And we all find out at the same time, right? Candidates don't get a preview to know in advance if they're going to win. They just find out when everybody else finds out. So I thought that was a great analogy. Like you're waking up on your wedding day, but you don't know if you're going to be left at the altar. That is super good. And Reagan, before you go, I will say like, I'm having like a little election night party in Tigard with a few other Tigard candidates. And like, I'm, you know, my district's relatively safe. Like I'm, I'm not super worried about it, but I also have this thing where I'm like, do I want to be at the election night party before the results are released? Because then you're, how you are responding in real time is like showing, you're showing everyone everything, like rather than showing up afterwards. So I identify very much with that wedding day analogy. Reagan. I cannot imagine that feeling. I've never, I've only ever been on the ballot as a PCP, which is so really cool this year, Dave, <laughs> on a on an official printed ballot. Even if you're only representing, you know, the 100 people in your particular pol political party, so it doesn't really carry the same weight to it. So I can imagine that being very stressful. Okay, so 
one of the things that I don't know about you, Secretary, is how you ended up in politics. Have you always been involved in politics or did you kind of fall into it on accident? What's your what's your kind of background there? So I did not fall into it on accident. I, I had thought I would. Politics was really big in my family growing up. So my dad, my dad was a single parent. I, I know a lot of Oregonians know my background. I've been really honest. My mom battled meth and heroin addiction for most of my life and was homeless at times and kind of in and out of rehab and in and out of like apartments that would get condemned while she lived there. And so, you know, my dad was our stability and he was very into politics. So he'd gone, he lived in DC for a while and was very involved in our, with our local Republican party. And so politics was a really, really big deal growing up. So he would talk about politics. It was just a big topic. So it was something that I, I think my dad would have probably run for office if he hadn't ended up raising three kids by himself. And that's mm. actually one of the reasons that when I got married, I kept my last name, not for like the normal, like feminist reasons that you would expect. I was just like, man, like my dad sacrificed everything, like all of his hopes and dreams to raise three kids by himself and to be the parent who was like in the stands at the away game when the Dows played Madras and like he drove and I still wouldn't ride home with him on the school bus. Like I'd still ride home with my friends, but he was just always there. And so I wanted to make sure that everything that I accomplished in life was in his last name that like lawn signs for Shamia Fagan, like have my dad's name on him. And so hmm. politics was really, really big growing up. And so it was something that I was really aware of and very conservative. I didn't vote in the 2000 election when I was in college, I didn't register. I wasn't even registered to vote. I just didn't, you know, didn't do it, but I would have voted for Bush. I was living in Idaho at the time. So I was, you know, grew up in a very Republican home, very conservative. My dad hated Hillary Clinton probably more than any person on the face of the earth. Um, So I I was in, I lived in Eastern Oregon in like the nineties, right. In like the eighties and nineties. So like the snow, the spotted owl years, like living in, Mm -hmm. in Wasco County. And so politics was always part of, my, you know, life. And so I thought certainly once I became a lawyer and, and went to law school, I remember thinking, oh, I might run someday, but it was something that I thought that people did when they were much older. And that I remember babyface Brent Barton in 2008, I'd never met him, didn't know him. And I remember him being on TV and being like, that dude's like younger than me. He's not but like by six months and he, but he looks so young. And I thought, wow, is this something people do now? And so I literally Googled, like, how do you run for office? And I found a book that's no longer in print that I didn't even know was from an Oregon author. It's called A Woman Runs. And it was by Jewel Lansing. I have that book. And Yes. And I had no idea it was by a woman from Oregon, Jewel Lansing, who's a mentor of mine, a dear dear woman. She was the first woman to run for statewide office in Oregon. She ran for treasurer in the 70s, didn't win, but she was the first woman to run for statewide office in Oregon. And so I'm reading this book. I'm like, oh, this is about Oregon. So I Google her and she's on the board of like the Emerge Oregon, which was just launching in 2009 after the 08 election where like Brent and all of them got elected. And so I, you know, went and applied to be an Emerge. And I'm so glad they did not record my interview because I <laughs> the dumb shit. And I'm like, I would never have gotten on in Emerge if they had recorded because I had no idea. Like I thought canvassing was when you stand at the corner of like, you know, 13th and Powell on election day and hold a sign. Like I had never done like grassroots politics. I was like a typical person in my twenties and only paid attention to federal politics. So Mm -hmm. thankfully Emerge Oregon really gave me all the pragmatic tools. And then from there I ran for the school board and that was 2011 and then got elected secretary of state in 2020. 
That's awesome. I didn't know all the details of that either. That's really cool. So fast forward, we're going to skip a few elections. We might come back to them later, but now you're Secretary of State, which in Oregon is interesting for a few reasons. So when you're giving people like high school students the pitch of like, what does the Secretary of State do? What are the responsibilities? What's the like overview of your responsibilities in this role? When I'm talking to high school kids, I usually point out that we make TikTok videos. <laughs> and just, you know, like feel like I could get some credit. I feel like even that's becoming like a medium for old people to high school students. So, I mean, whether it's high school students or senior citizens or adults in custody when I visit Oregon prisons or, you know, your everyday town hall folks. Honestly, the level of knowledge about the details of the Secretary of State's office is relatively the same, right? It's not something that people know the details of. And frankly, it's because it's not the same in every state. I mean, I'm a member, I'm actually the Western Regional Vice President for the National Association of Secretaries of State, the bipartisan Mm -hmm. organization. And like my job duties are really different than other secretaries, except for the running of elections. Certainly the chief elections officer is the secretary of state in most states, but not all. In, in Utah, it's their lieutenant governor. In Alaska, it's the lieutenant governor. And in, I think it's, uh, I forget, one of the far eastern states, she doesn't do elections at all. She like does the corporation division, essentially. So my functions are really different. And so I usually just start by telling people that it doesn't matter whether they know the details of what I do. What matters is they know that my mission is to build trust between the people of Oregon and their state government so that people actually can rely on and trust the public services that can make a positive difference in their everyday lives. And, you know, alluding to my origin story, right? Like my mom battled with addiction her whole life, was in and out of rehab, never could get the services she needed to be clean, housing insecurity. I know what it feels like for people when public services don't work. I know what it feels Mm -hmm. like when those public services can't be relied on and can't be trusted. I also know the impact when they work, like the public schools in in Northern Wasco County and the Dalles and Dufer that quite literally changed the outcome of my life. And so to me, that's my mission. And so we do that in a few key ways in in Oregon's Secretary of State's office. Of course, as you know, I oversee our state's elections, our chief elections officer. And I hope we talk a little bit more about that, what that does and doesn't mean. The the bottom line is, the spoiler alert is I only touch one ballot every election cycle, that's my (laughs) own. I don't send, receive, count, tally ballots. Number two, we have the corporation division, right? Which allows us to make sure that there's transparency with anybody asking for money to do business for people in Oregon, there's transparency. Number three, I oversee the archives division, and Mm. that's really important to build trust, I think, particularly in Oregon, but in other states as well, for telling Oregon's whole story, which is not just the story of, you know, happy pioneers discovering Oregon, but it's a story of displaced indigenous people and racism Mm. built right into our state constitution. I like the Amanda Gorman line from her inaugural poem for President Biden and Vice President Harris. She said being an American, but I paraphrase it to being an Oregonian. She said, you know, being an Oregonian is more than a pride that we inherit. It's a past we step into and how we repair it. And that's kind of the unofficial mission of our archives division to build trust. And then finally, in the audits division, which actually is our largest division, it's about twice the size of elections. And our job there is to build trust by making sure that the public services are doing what they're supposed to be doing and doing so in a way that's the most efficient use of resources and to make sure they're obviously serving the people who need those services the most. So really the details of what I do is hard for some people to follow, but if they walk out of a, you know, auditorium or a town hall meeting saying that my job is to build trust, that's good enough for me. 
Reagan, real quick follow up. Would you, Secretary Fagan, just like your role is bigger than most secretary? Like, like is that basically true? Oregon, in Oregon, the Secretary of State has more responsibilities than most other Secretary of States. I haven't done like a full overview. I think that I think that is true, particularly because I'm one of five states where the Secretary of State and the Lieutenant Governor share a role. So, mm-hmm. and they're all Western states. So they're Arizona. Wyoming and Oregon, it's the Secretary of State who also serves as Lieutenant Governor. And then in Utah and Alaska, it's the Lieutenant Governor who also serves as Secretary of State. So they're all Western states. Oh, I see. I just think there's probably some, there's probably some history there. People were like, why do we need this extra job of Lieutenant Governor? <laughs> like when states were, were, you know, becoming states later. But yeah, five of us, which is nice because I'm the Western Regional Vice President for the National Association of Secretaries of State. In that same role for the National Lieutenant Governor's Association is my colleague Keith Meyer up in Alaska. He's not running for election, so he won't be there anymore in January. And so the National Lieutenant Governor's Association has already asked me to be the Western Regional Vice President. And I said, well, sure, because for half of the states in the West, it's the same person in both roles. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, and I think um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's in Washington and Texas that I know for sure that the Lieutenant Governor actually presides over the Senate. Which, when I learned that, was like shocking to me because oh. I was like, "No, you don't. No, no." And uh, <laughs> but it's very much like the vice president presiding over the U.S. Senate and and being there to break ties and stuff like that. But we don't have that kind of a system in Oregon. There's no interaction with the legislature and you or the secretary of state from that perspective in terms of presiding or anything like. I'm that. I'm not a so. legislator. Yeah, that's actually yeah. I think true of. So when I go to the National Lieutenant Governors Association, that's a that's a fun fact, Reagan, because, yeah, there's definitely that's the organization where our roles are so yeah. diverse. I mean, there's some who mm. run on a separate ticket from their governor. There's some oh, right. um, with their governor. And so it's really, really diverse. And it's funny because while they have kind of a more fancy title than me, when I go to the Lieutenant Governors Association, like most of them have a staff of at most like a dozen or so people I'm like, oh, I run an agency of 225 people. So even though yeah. my title isn't as cool as some of my Lieutenant Governor colleagues, my role is A, is totally independent, separate mm-hmm. in constitutional office to hold actually the governor's office and other offices accountable to be providing the services that Oregonians need. But yeah, like a, I don't have to ask permission. I don't get given my duties by a governor, whereas a lot of my lieutenant governor colleagues do. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Okay, so I want to give you the opportunity to talk about what you do specifically in regards to elections. And mostly from the background that Oregonians of all backgrounds and all knowledge bases have different levels of confidence in elections, right? And so they want to know that they're fair. They want to know that they're accurate. So this is just really opening up the floor to you, talking about the things that you do, the things you don't do, and then maybe the things that happen at the clerk level or at your level to help ensure that there's accurate and fair elections. Right. So like I said before, I touch one ballot every election cycle, and that is my own. So the Secretary of State's office doesn't send ballots, receive ballots, tally ballots. That's all done at our 36 county elections offices, which are independent from each other. They Mm -hmm. have you know, voluntarily joined an association called the Oregon Association of County Clerks, but that's basically a professional organization where they can share ideas and support each other. There's no, it's not a governing body. They are governed, most of them by the voters of their county, and a handful of them are appointed by their county commissioners, but none of them are, are, I'm not their boss, right? I have Mm -hmm. colleagues of our county clerks. I support our county clerks. As of election day this year, I have visited all 36 county clerks, and so I went out. I wanted to do it every county every year, but 
you know, hospital capacity in some of our rural areas and stuff made that difficult in my first year as obviously COVID was still running rampant. But since May of this year, I've probably done 30 of the 36 counties. So I'm confident I'll be able to do every county every year. And, you know, whether it's way out in Wallowa County or down in Curry County, up in, you know, uh, Clatsop, Columbia, down to Malheur County, they they do their processes slightly different based on literally the space that they have, but there's a general uniformity. And that's what my job is as the chief elections officer in Oregon. One of them is to, to um, give guidance or directives. So there's uniformity in the way that elections law is administered. I also mm -hmm. um, oversee the elections division at the state level, which takes in elections complaints, investigates, and, you know, puts out um, either, you know, results or asks, you know, a remedy, usually fines for an elections complaint. But the uniformity is really the thing that I think most people, you know, so it's like, I don't tell the clerks how to do their job. It's important, however, like, let me just give you an example of, of some uniformity that we're working with right now. So you probably have heard both of you, because um, it's on Twitter, but Reagan, maybe you in particular, that there's kind of a push from some grassroots kind of Republican county parties to say, let's vote in person on the final day, right? I mean, to me, that sounds very inconvenient, but it's perfectly fine. People have always been able to vote in person in Oregon. It's been the beginning of vote by mail. Counties have always been required to have a certain number of in-person voting booths, right? So that's no problem. But I wanted to make sure that the, the law requires that if they are in line by 8 p.m., that they can vote, even if the line is long, just like when you're pulling up to a drop box, right? If you're in line by 8 p.m., you can uh, put your ballot in that drop box. But I wanted to make sure that it was uniform, whether they were in Multnomah County, Clackamas County, you know, Lake County, Grant County, Coos County, that what in line means and what 8 p.m. Mm. means is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so we, mm -hmm. we put out guidance. We worked on it over the weekend. I shared it with Justin Huang from the Republican, the chair of the Republican Party, and asked him to share with all the county parties to say, okay, in line doesn't mean have pulled into the parking lot. It doesn't mean, you know, somebody wait holding a spot for you in line. <laughs> It doesn't mean, you know, calling ahead and saying, I'll be right there, right? It means being in the line designated by the clerk. And eight o'clock doesn't mean eight o'clock in 10 seconds. It means when the clock turns from 7.59 and 59 seconds to eight o'clock that you are in the line designated yep. by the clerks, right? And so it's important for that uniformity. You don't want somebody in one county being considered in line, but then somebody in another county is not considered in line. So knowing that this might be something that is, I don't think it's still going to be a lot of people, but I think it might be enough to where people need to now be printing ballots at the county elections offices, printing ballots as they do sometimes for replacement ballots, which of course then the previous ballot that was issued was canceled in the system. So nobody could, could submit two ballots, but I yep. want to make sure. And that's also a way that I help to build trust, right? With I, I called up Justin over the weekend and said, Hey, I've heard about this. Would it be helpful to have an FAQ from our mm -hmm. office? that your county parties could share, that people could print out and bring with them if they're going to vote in person. So they know their rights to vote, even if it's after 8 p.m., as long as they are in line by 8 p.m. And he said, that would be great. Thanks. So we put that together over the weekend. I shared that with him on Saturday and said, you know, let me know if you have any questions. But that's a how I build trust, right? If people want to vote in person on the last day, that's up to them. I have no, you know, the votes are going to be processed and tallied exactly the same way if you vote on the first day or the last day. There's no difference. But if folks feel better about voting in person, that's fine. And I wanted to make sure that these, you know, particularly grassroots Republican parties that want to do this, that they know that I'm looking out for their voting rights, too. I want them to know exactly what 8 p.m. means and exactly what being in line means. That makes total sense. Uh, I've actually been into the Lynn County Clerk's Office a couple of times. And during election season, 
they have that little like uh, little booth area where you can go and it's protected so you can fill out your ballot right there uh, in person right. if you want to They're which required to by law have that every county uh, which has I, and a certain number. I don't think I've ever used it but I think one of my family members had to get a replacement ballot because it's damaged in the rain or they made a mistake or something like that and so they went in and they they voted there so that's really cool uh, things I did not know that I did not know you could vote in person in Oregon, uh, but that's cool. Um, okay. So you spoke to this a little bit, but um, it seems like on, on both, it's very different depending on which political party, but both political parties are expressing concerns about elections integrity. And this isn't an Oregon issue. This is a national issue um, that I think frankly was brought on by Donald Trump, like sort of instilling questions what when you think about the term elections integrity, what do you think of as like the biggest threats right now facing our elections? It's actually misinformation because mm. our elections are very secure. And I would say I think that these conspiracy theories started a bit in 2016. Um, there was some conspiracies um, in the on the Democratic side about you know Russian hacking or mm-hmm. you know into election machines. There was conspiracies in the de- in the, re- the Democratic primary around you know certain people you know, doing things that were changing votes. So I think that, I mean, it certainly has increased, no doubt, since 2020. And there are still, you know, there's not a lot of people from 2016 still saying the election was stolen from Bernie Sanders or from somebody, but boy, there are still a lot of people saying that the, I mean, there's still a big, a significant minority of people who believe that um, Joe Biden was not legitimately elected, Mm -hmm. even though we know he was. Federal courts all over the country have said he was. Bipartisan officials, Trump's own, um, you know, FBI director said he, you know, that he was like it was a, it was the most secure election in modern history, 2020. In part, and this is the best part, because so many people did vote by mail because of the pandemic, and it was voted on paper. Now, I first want to say that I know my colleagues across the country, Republican and Democratic colleagues, they vote on machines. They also have rigorous security and testing procedures to verify and audit their machines. So this is not casting any dispersion on that whatsoever. It just is the fact that when you can take a paper ballot that you mark with your own pen and that paper ballot is actually hand recounted before the secretary of state certifies the result, there's a kind of old school security there, right? It's paper and -hmm. you can't have paper. And so, um, but the biggest thing about election uh, integrity is that it is there. It's there in Oregon. It's there in states. Others voter suppression is a real thing. In fact, the whole history of our democracy is basically chipping away at different types of voter suppression. Right when it started, everybody except you know white male landowners were suppressed from the vote, and our whole democracy is a story of chipping away at that at that uh, voter suppression. But election integrity is something that that I trust. Um, you know, my colleagues across. The country, and particularly here in Oregon, we've done vote by mail for over 20 years and in over 40 years, actually, when you consider that the first enabling legislation for vote by mail was actually the the year I was born, which feels very timely that I'm Secretary of State right now. So 1981 was the first enabling legislation. Lynn County, Reagan, you mentioned that was the first county to perform a vote by mail election. No way. Yeah, I didn't know that. Counties piloted it. And then it became statewide in 1998, but it, different counties piloted it for different elections from, you know, basically 1981 to 1997. So when, and then of course, for the past over 20 years under Republican, you know, secretaries of states and democratic secretaries of states, we've done vote by mail in Oregon. And so it's funny when people across the country have just started thinking about it and they all of a sudden come up with these things like, oh, wow, what if somebody was to like steal about it out of the mailbox and <laughs> turn it in? It's like, well, Turns out in 40 years, 
somebody thought of that in the <laughs> anti-fraud protection. Like, that's great that you're just learning about vote by mail. We've been doing <laughs> yeah. it for 40 years in millions of ballots and we have built in anti-fraud protections. You couldn't, you know, if somebody tried to vote somebody else's ballot, first off, they would be signing under penalty of perjury that they are the person to whom the ballot was issued. And then every signature is verified at every county elections office, not a randomized sample. Every mm -hmm. single signature is looked at to compare. Oh, I didn't know that either. The signature that's on the voter registration yeah. database. That's why your ballot envelope, Ben, has a ballot barcode, because that barcode will bring up your voter registration information. Again, this is before the ballot envelope is opened. So your ballot, how you vote is private. That you have turned in your ballot is public information. How you vote is private. So that barcode on the outside of your envelope brings up your voter registration information and your signature. And then that signature is matched with the one that is signed on the envelope. It's for every single, for the however many million Oregonians are going to vote this election cycle, every single signature is checked. And you probably know people who have had their signature kicked back to them. It's not <laughs> something that it's the vast majority don't get kicked back, but it's not rare. Every election cycle, a certain number yep. of signatures don't match. And it's usually because somebody has just changed their signature, maybe since they last voted and they can cure that. But every single signature is verified. That's why we know people aren't stealing ballots out of envelopes and filling up other people's ballots because that signature has to match the voter registration signature. Is it is it a, like a computer that's checking matching signatures or is it literally humans? It's mostly humans. They're actually trained in forensic handwriting analysis. Wow. So I actually attended one of those trainings. It is done by people who do this for banks, like forensic handwriting analysis. There are some counties that have been using what's called automatic signature verification, but like Multnomah County does, for example. But the, the elections director there, Tim Scott, has it set to 100% match. So if it doesn't match 100%, in the, in the machine looking at it, it gets kicked out and then it's looked at with human eyes. So unless it wow. matches a hundred percent, it gets kicked out and looked at by elections worker. I did, cool. uh, we had a very close election in a primary in House District 53 that I was involved in. So I got a, like a deep dive. That's like being a close election is like the number one way to find out like all of the information because <laughs> like people show up the next day at the elections office being like, okay, so like now what happens, right? And the clerks <laughs> yeah. are like, we've got this, like calm down. And, uh, but it's, it's usually displayed, like they have a monitor that shows up and they're going through each one and they're displaying and it's showing you like the the signature card uh, and, and, the, and the ballot signature too, I think, right? That's right, yep. Yep. Um, okay, so the new thing that you get to do for the first time as Secretary of State that I don't think any Secretary of State's ever done before is uh, ballots are now accepted with a election day postmark. And so before the old system was, if your ballot is not in a Dropbox or in an elections office by 8 p.m., it doesn't count. Now it could count um, as long as it has a, a postmark for uh, when we're recording this on Monday, November 7th, it would have to have a November 8th uh, postmark. Um, is there any other details or information about the the kind of the set of this new law that you want to let let voters know about or or talk about, um, or is that pretty much it? This is very important and highly technical. It's called the Damian Lillard rule. Okay, <laughs> when Dame's hitting a buzzer beater, when Dame's hitting a buzzer beater, that what matters is that the ball has left his hands yes uh -huh. time the, the clock goes to 0, 0.0 it doesn't have to be in the hoop but it has left his hand he has lost control of the ball it has left his hand by uh -huh. the time the clock strikes down so highly technical term here 
but it's the Damian Lillard rule is what we call it. So that ballot has to have left your hand, be in a ballot drop box, or be postmarked and in the mail before the election. You have lost control of it. It is out of your hand. It can mm -hmm. arrive up to seven days after um, the election. Most of them are experienced in May because we had this rule in the May election. Most of the ballots that were going to arrive after election day arrived Wednesday, um, between Wednesday and Thursday, but the vast majority were the day after the election. But again, mm -hmm. these were ballots that were postmarked by election day. And it's funny, like you said, Reagan, you learn about weird, highly technical things. Like I think after eight years in this job, if Oregonians give me eight years, I'm going to like be an <laughs> kicker at Trivial Pursuit because I know so much <laughs> weird information now. But you may look at a ballot and say, oh, it doesn't have a postmark, but that some of the postal services use an invisible, like an invisible type ink. And then our, our counties, we bought them um, for the Secretary of State's office. We can sometimes buy equipment for them to make sure everybody has a certain, you know, level of equipment. And we bought them mm -hmm. scanners. So they actually have scanners that can scan those kind of postmarks that you maybe can't see with the naked eye to make sure that that ballot is postmarked by election day. So that's the big yeah. thing is that folks can probably still put it in the mail today and put the flag up, but if they're going to be putting it in the mail tomorrow, they should make sure they check the collection times or, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be better just go put in a Dropbox, right? Because a Dropbox by 8 PM, you're good to go. Yeah. And again, if you're in line for a Dropbox by 8 PM, stay in line because even if it's 802 or 803 or 805, as long as you were in line, by 8 p.m., you can drop your ballot in a drop box, but not a USPS box. Check the collection. <laughs> well, so, that's, I think that's the important thing. Sorry, Ben, I didn't mean to run over you. Yeah. Is before the system was a little bit wonky because it was like, yeah, you probably shouldn't mail your ballot the Wednesday before the Thursday before because like you don't know when it arrived. But here you can ask your mail carrier when stuff gets postmarked. You can see on the USPS most of those boxes when the mail is collected. And all that stuff. And so when it's going to get a postmark. So it's a lot clearer now on the cutoff for mailing, which I, I think I like because it's like you probably shouldn't mail your ballot if you get asked on like Thursday. But you never know. You just don't you don't want to be concerned. And then there was all the the things in the, one of the last elections about like was the mail being slowed down or wasn't it and all that stuff. You just don't want to have to deal with that. Right. Yep. So I do think that that provides a lot of clarity for people. No, it's actually great. I mean, in lots of ways, too, particularly for college students who are not living at home. So who are not, you know, like per currently living in Oregon, they're living in college, but they're still mm -hmm. residing in Oregon, right? So I heard from somebody this morning, actually, who's who hadn't who had remembered postmark rule, and she was stressed because her daughter just got her ballot in like North Carolina and just got mailed oh, to her. Yeah. Oh my God, how is she going to get it in? I said, oh, just make sure it's postmarked by today. It can arrive up to seven days after, but it needs to be postmarked by tomorrow. And she's like, oh, I forgot that's the new rule. So it makes sense, particularly for folks that maybe are first responders or caring for a family member or for otherwise any other reason or out of state to know that they can postmark it. That 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 um, back and forth that you're talking about, Reagan, used to drive me nuts. I'm sure we've all canvassed during final five, right? The final five yes. days. And yep. it was like, well, K2 said you can still mail it as of no, Saturday, but KW said yeah. Friday. And it's like, oh, it was like the most confusing weekend in Oregon politics was yeah. is it too late to mail it or not? And now it's like, nope, just get it postmarked by election day. So speaking of confusing, um, my first election night party was Kitzhaber 2010. And on election night 2010, John Kitzhaber was down pretty significantly to Chris Dudley. And then as votes were counted over the next couple of days, he eventually came came back and was declared the winner. Um, because of the new postmark rule, maybe that timeline is a little bit different. I guess what I'm getting at is 
I'm operating under the assumption that we will not know the winner of the governor's race and probably some legislative races and other races on election night. Um, can you, for, for, for folks who are wondering, when are we going to know the winner? When are we going to know the winner? How, what's that timeline look like um, over the next few weeks? Well, first off, I want to say that we always, we do it the same regardless of whether a race is close or not, right? Like the county clerks typically, this is not a rule or a requirement, but typically the results that you see on Tuesday at 8 p.m. are usually the votes that have been received in the counties by uh, by end of day Monday. So that's mm. typically what they try to vote post on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Now, some do more, some do less, but like that's the general like target that they're aiming for is like those, those 8 p.m. Tuesday results are the ballots that had been received by Monday and processed, okay? And so then they're after that, they're processing election day. And now maybe, but again, it wasn't this huge number. It wasn't like 10% of ballots coming in after election day with those postmarks. Again, I want to emphasize these are ballots cast on time under mm -hmm. the Damian Lillard rule. But we do it the same either way. So I've been getting this question a lot from, you know, the news media. And I always remind them that like, they're the ones that call the unofficial winners, right? I don't do that. I right. declare, I don't declare a winner till December 15th when <laughs> I by the election results. And I, and I don't do that till after all 36 counties have performed a hand recount audit um, to verify that the results are correct. Spoiler alert, they always have been in all the time we've done audits. Um, but, but yeah, that's important. And so I don't declare results one way or the other. Now, what you're asking though, is when will enough ballots be processed to where KGW and K2 and the Oregonian and OPV can kind of use their algorithms and project an unofficial winner. And yeah, I think it's fair to assume that in close races, that's hard to do on election night. If we're still waiting for ballots, a from election day to be processed. And then if the race is really, really close um, you may need, you know, votes from that Wednesday or Thursday, those votes that were cast on time under the Damian Lillard rule. But again, that's because the media has algorithms and they don't always get it right. I'm sure you remember, I think, the, I think your race, right? My race, but also I think Kitsopper in 2010. Yes. I think yeah. that, um, that I think the Oregonian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the major news stations declared Dudley the winner and then they were wrong. Yeah. And my race for secretary of state in May of 2020, um, the media got it wrong. Now, again, they were trying to harm me. Their algorithm just didn't anticipate, uh, you know, that a lot of people who voted again on election day, because that's those votes that often come in after they were going to break so hard for me. I didn't anticipate that. I called Mark Cass <laughs> and offered him a gracious concession, He's a good guy and a great colleague and told him I was excited to work with him when I was still in the state Senate. So, um, you know, the Oregonian called me the next day and deeply apologized. And I said, hey, look, you know, this happens. That's why that's the unofficial projected winner. It's not the winner because K2 or the Oregonian says it is. They're using their algorithms to be the first to break the news, but they have their own internal algorithm of, of how comfortable they will be to call the races. But that's not for, because of anything we at the Secretary of State's office or our 36 counties do differently. And again, I don't declare a winner until December 15th. So that's, that's when I performed the post-election audit. That's so, so December 15th is the final, yep. that is when like everything has to be done by December 15th. That's when I have to certify, not only the count, they have to be counted, but they have to have performed their post-election audits. Um, that then that when I get all 36 county audits, that their tabulator machines uh, matched exactly the hand recounts, then that's when I certify by the 15th. Got it. All right, we've got only a couple of minutes left, so we're entering lightning round here. Um, so you can you can expand a little bit, but I just I just wanted to let you know that we got a couple rapid fire here coming for you. Um, 
let's see. Uh, how does your office determine who to audit? And how much say do you have as the Secretary of State? So there are some audits that are required under law and statute. Yep. So when a bill gets passed, sometimes it says it has to be audited. Um, we can do about it. We're constrained by budget. But yeah, I work with our audits director, who, by the way, is the same audits director who was hired by Dennis Richardson. He's a fantastic audits director. And, and I, even though I could have let him go and hired someone else, I didn't. He's fantastic. So just for folks who know, you know, Republican Secretary Richardson had same audits director as I have. And then I get to help decide which things we audit, but then I have no control over the outcome of the audit. That's all done under rigorous government accountability office standards. Cool. Um, so my, my follow-up to that, and this is not a lightning round question, so this, this might be the last substantive question. Um, regardless of who wins the governor's race, we're about to have like a really significant transition in state government leadership. Um, we're going to have a new governor. Um, we're likely to have really significant um, transition in the legislature, including at the leadership level. Um, and so, you, you know, you, you can, your office conducts all these audits. I'm sure you've read dozens of audits um, over the last couple of years. Um, and there does seem to be this sort of pervasive sense right now. And again, not just in Oregon, but also in Oregon that like state government doesn't seem to be working really well, or like maybe it's not rising to meet the challenges that we're facing. Um so I'm kind of curious, like, like the way that I phrase the question is, do you have any broadly applicable insight on how we could make the state enterprise work better? And maybe another way of putting that is like, what will your advice be for the next governor? But I'm kind of curious just how you're you're thinking about that dynamic of like state government and how we can make it work better and, and meet the challenges that we're facing. The short answer is take our auditor's recommendations. I mean, a lot of the failures that you can see, I mean, there was an audit of the un Oregon un unemployment computer system like long time before, before the big failure in 2020. Now, again, 2020 was rough because no one anticipated like this pandemic and the numbers, but still like that had been audited. And so auditors chief job in the end is to assess risk. And so they put out these audit reports and say, here's the risk, or this is why this statute is not working. But that then often has to be followed up on either by legislators making those things a priority or by agency heads implementing changes. And so, mm. I mean, honestly, and I'm not saying this because I'm the secretary, again, I don't have any control over what their actual recommendations are. Those are determined by government accountability office standards. They would, I mean, or my whole audit team would quit if I was in there being like, no, ignore that evidence, <laughs> bring in this evidence, right? And I would never try to do that because I'm a person of integrity, but that's not even something that can happen. And so they're going through these rigorous, these rigorous standards. They're peer reviewed by other auditors, a very rigorous standard to come up with audit recommendations, but they should follow them because they're out there looking um, at what can be changed in legislation to actually make things work better, or they're looking at what can be changed in an agency to actually make programs, like we said, to build trust and actually make sure that the public services are making the, the most positive impact needed, particularly in the lives of Oregonians who need them the most. Hmm. All right, here's our uh, closing question. And this is going to be, I guarantee you, the number one thing that like hashtag Oracle on Twitter wants to know. <laughs> if And if you don't, I would, I would request that you report back to us at a later <laughs> date if you can find it out. How many election, uh, how many political nerds, you won't know how many political nerds, but how many people are refreshing <laughs> results.organvotes.gov on election night? Well, at least one, two, three, who I, <laughs> um, I don't have the exact number. I'll see if Ben can get that. But yeah, I mean, I put like a meme on my Twitter yesterday, my personal, like my personal Twitter that was like that meme of like, it was like a whole bunch of people hitting a slot machine in Vegas, so, like yeah, people yeah. like hitting refresh on Oregon votes. 
Um, here's my, I'll, I'll close on this. And so I'll get out Ben, get you the number if, if that's something that we track, but I have a, this is maybe for Ben since you're actually on the ballot this time, but ever since my first race where, by the way, I hated being at a party, like everyone's trying oh to get off and all my brain was thinking was like, Oh my God, this is in 2012, my first race, you know, against an incumbent Republican. I, you know, there was no way I knew I was going to win. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, I don't, I can't even hear people right now. I just want to know the results. <laughs> and so at that time I was like, I don't want to be with people when the results come out, it's too right. stressful. So I now have a tradition of at 7.55, I go for a 10 to 15 minute walk. Mm. I don't bring my phone. I don't go with anybody. Oh my God. I map out the route beforehand. So I take this very peaceful, lots of deep breaths. <laughs> and so when I get back, it's usually 8.05 and 8.10 and people know something. They know something. Like in fact, this, when I ran, when I won secretary of state in November, two years ago, when I walked back into my friend's house where I was watching the results, I was somebody who was kind of in my COVID bubble. Um, I walk in and they had already, like the Oregon, he had already called the race for me like before <laughs> I ever hit OregonVotes.gov once. But it's very, so I give that to you, Ben, as a gift because that those minutes from 757, oh. 758, they last for three hours. It's scientifically proven. They're brutal. Um, and so just go for like a 15 minute walk, do some like breathing, know that like, I mean, I don't know how worried you are about your race. I haven't followed any particular race, but like know that no matter what, like every, like, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Everybody's going to be fine, right? Like take those breaths and then you get back at like 8.05 and 8.10 and there's already some like analysis that's been done and you already know something. So that's my little tip for other candidates out there. Although I guess this will have already happened by the time they're hearing this. So that'll be for like the school board <laughs> race next May. There I will go. at least utilize that. Um, well, Secretary Fagan, thank you so much. Oh yeah, go ahead. Ben, I'll come up and I'll take you to the movies. How about that? We'll <laughs> no, leave at like very six short, and we'll like get a back. Film. A short <laughs> film, right? right? It's like a 15 minute movie. <laughs> no, Wakanda forever. Let's, let's, let's go for a long movie. Yes, I uh, like it. Well, we are right at time. So we want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And the, the final question is, if folks want to learn more about your office or maybe read some of your audits, uh, where's the best place for them to go to learn more? OregonVotes.gov. Super easy. All right. Thank you very much, Secretary Fagan. We really appreciate it. Thanks, you guys.